from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. So glad you're here. To join us in the conversation we have, well, every week, exploring all those things related to work and the rest of your life, your family, your community, our society, your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. How to bring all those pieces together? How do we do that for ourselves, our families, our organizations, our communities, our society? That's the question. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I am the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and of our leadership program here at Wharton, where I've been since 1984. Wow. Probably longer than my guest today has been alive, I'm guessing. We'll find out, or will we? Now, I run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership. You can visit totalleadership.org for information on what we do to help people and organizations find harmony among the different parts of life while improving performance in all of them. New episodes of this show premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on SiriusXM Channel 132. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. And I'm at Stu Friedman. My guest today <clears throat> is a clinical psychologist and an academic a researcher whose focus is on family relationships and her recent work in her laboratory has been tracking expectant and new parents in the pandemic. This might relate to your situation directly or perhaps somebody you know and care about. I'm delighted to introduce Darby Saxby, who is a professor of psychology at the University of Southern California's David and Dana Dornsife College of Letters, Arts and Sciences. Darby, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you. I am delighted to be here. Well, let me tell listeners just a, a bit about you. There's a lot in your background, in the many achievements of your career so far, just a brief uh, snapshot, and then we'll get into our conversation. Darby has two main lines of research. The first investigates the impact of family environments and family transitions on parents. And the second investigates the impact of family environments on children. Her ongoing hormones across the transition to child rearing a.k.a. Hatch study, funded in 2016 by a five-year career award from the National Science Foundation, follows first-time expectant parents from pregnancy across the first year postpartum in order to understand the factors that predict successful adjustments to parenthood. She has a bachelor's degree in English and psychology from Yale University and a PhD in clinical psychology from UCLA, Darby. Let's, uh, there's so much I want to know from you, but, you know, before we get into uh, what you've been discovering in your research, especially that which might be relevant to our listeners, um, the, the, the motivating question, as I understand it, how do family relationships get under the skin? What a great question. Everybody's got that question, right? How did you decide to pursue that? as your career interest? What led you to that? Yeah, great question. So I'm a child of divorce, um, you know, sort of a, a 1980s divorce in which uh, my mom and dad had the same hours outside the home at work, but um, my mom really felt like my dad wasn't sort of chipping in at home. 
So, you know, I've always been really interested in how families navigate um, household responsibilities. Um, you know, sort of ironically, after my parents separated, my dad, um, you know, became a single father and, and like cooked all our meals and sewed all our clothes. So I sort of had an unusual, um, you know, kind of patriarch um, running the household. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I've always been interested in families and stress and close relationships and, um, I, uh, as you mentioned, I was an English major in college. I thought I wanted to be a journalist or an English professor and uh, graduated in the late 90s and kind of found myself in the dot-com boom. And and then because I'm an idiot in the early aughts, thought, oh, this internet thing isn't really going anywhere. I'm going to go to grad school and get a real job. That was stupid. So, <laughs> that was totally stupid. Um, three years later, the company I worked at got sold for $26 million and and I was, you know, a third year grad student. So... Um, <laughs> I, I with no at, equity with no equity <laughs> mm -hmm. I get it because that that's why I'm an academic right no no business skills well you're you're at a business school so you have business schools business uh, but questionable not, but not so continue. much yes negative business skills over here um so sort of coming um looking at graduate programs with this sort of background of having been in English and writing and and then transitioning to psychology um, I kind of landed in this very interdisciplinary lab at UCLA where I was working on um, this, the everyday lives of families study, which was this really interesting kind of week in the life study of how dual income middle class families are making it work. And we essentially stalked these families. We followed them around their homes. We watched them eat their meals at the dinner table and we sampled their saliva because we wanted to look at their stress hormone fluctuations across the day. So I sort of got really interested in what we were tracking in the saliva, which is a stress hormone called cortisol. And that kind of ended up being my corner of the study. So I was looking at how the cortisol patterns in these middle-class Los Angelinos were syncing up with their relationship quality, with their household routines, um, and even with the speech that they use to describe their home spaces. So very much under the skin in the sense that we were looking at how this hormone produced by the body was tracking um, with their household context. And um, one early finding from that study was that women who reported marital distress actually had less adaptive patterns of cortisol across the day. So sort of suggesting that something about the relationship quality was affecting this marker of women's chronic stress and health. Mm. And when we, so this was not, this was not true for the men in your study It was not true for the men. And, and so that was really intriguing for us. And, and there is some um, evidence from kind of epidemiological studies that marriage has this kind of all cause mortality and longevity boost for men. Um, but, but women can you are, explain what that means? Yeah. All, all so, cause. so married men live longer than single men. Um, marriage is good for men, you know, which when I teach this, I always say it's sort of ironic because if you think about the bridezilla who's trying to drag the man to the altar, right? There's this sort of stereotype that women are motivated to get married. Bridezilla? Bridezilla? Right? Who say yes to the dress. There's this whole culture around I don't women. know anything about what you're talking <laughs> about, Darby, but right? I... All right. I was, bridal, I was... It's not called the, the groom industry. It's the bridal industry. Okay, I hear you. But marriage is actually better for men. Um, and, and in fact, and there are a lot of reasons why that might be the case. It has to do with caregiving. It has to do with sure. social support and connection. Um, but and men are idiots. And men are idiots, right. 
Um, just like me with my business sense. There are a lot of idiots in this conversation. Um, but what we find is that women are more sensitive to the differential quality of the mm. marriage relationship. So unhappily married women are no healthier than single women. Um, so there's sort of this overall boost that men get from marriage um, with women you know, single women actually end up sort of looking better than women that are trapped in marriages that aren't working for them. So we were trying to sort of dig in and, and figure why, figure out why this might be the case. Um, one thing we zeroed in on is just the division of labor in the household. And so our next study actually used this um, scan sampling method, which is adapted from studies following primates in the wild. So you follow a troop of of apes and you wanna see what they're doing every 10 minutes. We did this for the couples in our study. And so we looked at every 10 minutes, where were they in the house and what were they up to? And um, we used that data to figure out how much household work uh, the couples were doing. And so um, we found that when women spent a greater proportion of their time at home doing chores, mm. they actually showed less healthy cortisol patterns mm. than, uh, than the, um, you know, women who were spending less time in household labor. And we found the same pattern for men, right? So it may be that this link between relationship quality and cortisol levels was actually driven by women kind of shouldering an inequitable ah. proportion of the domestic household labor. Okay. So, uh, before we go further on this, if you could just give us uh, a sentence or two on why cortisol levels matter. Yeah, that's your main, you know, outcome variable, right? Yes, in, at least in this early research. Yeah, exactly. So cortisol is um, sort of the end product of the body's stress response system. And it's interesting to researchers in two ways. One is that it's a marker of stress. It uh, fluctuates when uh, people have had um, a stressful or threatening event. And it also has a daily cycle, a diurnal pattern um, where cortisol levels are highest in the morning and drop across the course of the day. Cortisol is considered to be an indicator of sort of healthy adaptation to stress. So a lot of my work has looked at cortisol patterns, how cortisol levels change across the day. Those have been associated with longevity, with chronic health problems, with burnout and with stress. So I'm kind of using cortisol as an indicator of how the body is responding to stress and then exploring that in conjunction with psychosocial relationships. Okay. All right. So you were, you were describing the, uh, the early findings about um, differences. Well, how, how women were negatively affected by poor relationship quality and that some of that seems to have been driven by the disproportionate amount of uh, household care or household uh, responsibilities they had. Do I have that right? Yes. Okay. So um, wh- what are what are sort of the main findings from this body of research? Before we get into the pandemic and what you've been learning about the pandemic, which I, I want to get to, and I know listeners are very interested in, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in your large body of research now on, on family environments, family transitions, now we understand where you got started in this and thank you for that background and your candid description of your early background, which is always great to, to know. It just helps to all of us to understand, you know, your story, where you're coming from. Can you give us just a brief overview of what your research has found about 
families and children, like the big headlines, uh, before we get into what the pandemic has wrought. And before you respond to that, let me just remind listeners, uh, we, I am speaking today with Darby Saxby, who's a professor at USC. We're talking about her research on family relationships and parenthood and child outcomes. So, Darby, what what are the the big ideas that have come yeah. from your two decades of study? Right. So, so the work I'm doing now looks at the transition to parenthood. Mm-hmm. And I've really been zeroing in on this idea that becoming a parent is a critical window for health and adulthood. So I think there's so much research interest and attention on kind of cardiometabolic risk factors in late life that are linked with disease. Um, but we're kind of missing this inflection point in lifelong health trajectories that occurs maybe about a decade early or earlier from when many studies are looking, and that's across the transition to parenthood. So we know it's a time of neuroplasticity. We know that the brain is uh, developing and changing across pregnancy and the postpartum period in women. And then my, stu- my, my lab is collecting some data looking at this in men. We know that it's a time of behavioral change, of change to sleep and exercise and work routines. We know that it's a time of relationship, reorganization, identity reformation. So it's sort of like you have this nexus of all these overlapping changes that are kind of occurring at the same time that also set the stage for how a new parent might nurture the next generation. Mm -hmm. So I think it's this really impactful time that tends to get neglected both in our research and also in our policy, um, certainly in the U.S., where we don't have the kind of federal parental leave protections that you see in many other developed countries. Yes. So, and let me just insert here a brief note. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, in concert with New America's Vicky Shabo, mm-hmm. I was the lead signatory on a letter that we got signatures from 298 business school faculty to send to the Biden-Harris administration and to every member of Congress advocating for national family uh, and paid leave for families and, and for family and medical leave uh, now. And that now is the window that we can make that happen. And there's some possibility that we might. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but, but back to what you have been finding. Yes, of course, this is so obvious to anyone who just thinks for a second about what, what families really need. And that is care for parents so that they can care for their kids. Uh, so, remarkably, I mean, you're saying that, that this has been an uh, underdeveloped area of, of research. I guess it's not when you look at the, the larger social and political and cultural context of America, where we really just don't seem to care that much uh, about what children really need, but let me get off my soapbox here and, and ask you to to, um, tell us more about what it is that, uh, that you have found about this critical transition? Yeah, yeah. I, I always say that I'm a developmental psychologist, but I'm interested in adult development because I'm interested in how the brain and body change across adulthood. And, and you know, there just isn't a lot of work that's really looked at kind of plasticity in adulthood, specifically around parenting, even though it is such an important 
life stage that, you know, is so important to the next generation. When you say plasticity, you mean that we're capable of change, right? Exactly. Exactly. And we know that the brain develops and changes across the lifespan, right? Like there are studies of if we engage in music training or if we undergo psychotherapy, you know, we, we can see changes in how the brain looks or functions. And so one thing I've been looking at in my lab is how father's brains might change across the transition to parenthood. So um, I, I partnered with Spain that has done one of the first longitudinal studies of mother's brains across the transition to parenthood. So they scanned women who were at a fertility clinic in Spain to look at their brain structure, gray matter volume, and then scan them again after they had a child and compared them to a group of women who are followed across the same time span, but didn't become mothers and actually found that the brains of the mothers shrunk um, they lost, which sounds like a bad joke, but they lost gray matter volume, um, which looks like a sort of like efficiency and consolidation story. Um, you know, when when you're a child, you you actually prune, your brain becomes more myelinated to support more effective, quick thinking. And so in the social cognitive areas where these new moms lost brain volume, those are some of the same areas that support uh, social cognition and some of the sort of hard work that you have to do as a new parent. So we're tracking a sample of fathers. So I'm really interested in men and how men parent and how men's bodies are transformed. By- I am too, but first I need to understand yeah. what you just said about yeah. women's brains, because I don't think I fully get it. Um, so you're saying that women's brains shrink and this is a good thing. Yes, exactly. Because, so- well, go ahead. Yes. So yeah, when I tell my mom friends this, they say, of course, my, you know, my brain has lost all kinds of gray cells since I had kids, but it actually looks like it's adaptive. And that's based on this research group uh, collected reports of women's attachment to their babies and their parenting experience and found that women who lost more gray matter volume actually reported stronger bonding with their children. So it seemed like there was something adaptive about this neural remodeling that was facilitating bonding in, you know, the early months of parenthood. Whoa. So, so it's cool. Yeah, stuff, it's, right? I, yeah. It's, well, it's, it's, I, I, I mean, so what does this imply for, you know, an executive mom who needs, you know, big gray matter to be, you know, making complex decisions and managing uh, themselves in a, in a, uh, you know, in a challenging uh, world. Uh, if, what are the implications well, for, so, so for I, I, women yeah, at work? I would start by pushing back on the idea that big gray matter is, is valuable, right? Okay. Like having a more efficient streamlined, like lean and mean brain is actually better than having a lot of gray matter volume with, you know, pathways that aren't, um, you know, particularly consolidated. So I actually think if you think about this, that what, what do you need to do as a parent, right? Like imagine you have a new baby, your baby cries. You have to make a lot of decisions in a short period of time. You have to detect the source of their distress. You have to problem solve. Um, you know, you have somebody nonverbal um, who, you know, you have to try to understand what is going on for that little person who can't tell you what's wrong. Um, You might have to experiment and test a number of possible solutions. 
Um, you know, in, in some ways it's analogous to what it takes to, you know, manage an organization or a team. I think we undervalue the work of caregiving. We, we don't see it as remunerative, um, but it's actually hard work that is, you know, very cognitively demanding in some ways. Well, of course. And, I, and what I'm asking about is the change in brain structure. What's the implication for one's capacity at work? And you're saying that a postpartum brain is a better manager brain? That's exactly what I'm saying. Well, what I'm really saying is we don't know, but that would be a speculation that would be really interesting to test. It sure would. A postpartum brain is not necessarily a diminished brain. I think we have these narratives. Even if it's smaller. Right. In terms of gray matter. Smaller, sharper, you know, quicker moving, better problem solving, more socially attuned. Right. And I think if we sort of flip all these values that we associate with parenting and think of them as as really big pluses for well, functioning in the workplace. Are you then, preaching to the choir? You know, I, that's something that's that I, I, I know and believe just from, you know, intuitively as well as, you know, clinically in my own experience, uh, you know, working with literally thousands of people. Uh, over the years in terms of how they see the relationship between the different parts of their lives and how uh, changes at work, changes at home influence the other domains of their lives. And it, right. uh, in, in many ways, it is it is positive, uh, you know, as a contrary, as you as you were just saying to the 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 common mythology, I would say the narrative of yes. conflict and diminished capacity in one domain as a result of, you know, a change in the other. So. This is fascinating. Where are you now with, we're going to, after a break, which we're going to have taken a minute or two, we'll, we'll talk about fathers, but what, where are you now with what you're studying, what you're finding about, about mothers and how their brains change and other changes in them as a result of becoming parents? Yeah. So when I heard about this study, which, you know, I mentioned was done by a research group in Spain, I essentially got on a plane and, you know, I, I had a Fulbright last year to Barcelona and, tried to just kind of soak up everything that they had done. And so what we're doing in our lab is testing similar hypotheses, but with a sample of new dads. So we're looking at how new parenthood changes male perspectives, male experiences, and then also the fathering brain. All right. So, and I I have a lot of questions about that. Let's just wrap up this piece about, you know, the, the, the big implications uh, for, for, Expectant mothers, mothers who are, um, you know, recently become mothers. What what do you tell them about what your research helps them to understand about their experience? Yeah, so I would say there's a lot going on under the hood as you become a new parent. I think we have these mythologies in the U.S. in particular about bouncing back. You know, like tabloid covers of celebrities with like flat bellies this idea that she got her body back, she got her mojo back at work. Um, I would say that that's a toxic myth. Uh, I think in other countries where there are, you know, 12 to 18 months of parental leave, there's a more widespread recognition of the time of the fact that this is a time that's worth protecting, that it's, you know, we talked about plasticity and change, that times of change are also times of vulnerability and risk. We know that risk of mood disorders are heightened in new moms, for example. We know that sleep deprivation is pervasive. So, you know, I want to realign our whole society to, you know, treat that first year after the birth of a baby as sort of sacred and precious space that should be protected 
from the incursions of the outside world. So what Amen. I would have to say to a new mom is like, yes. go call your congressman and demand better parental leave, right? Because I don't think it's an individual responsibility of moms. I think it's a it's a societal uh, priority that we need to place on new parenthood. Yes, and that is a topic, as you can imagine, Darby, we talk a lot about on this show. Uh, and uh, it's 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 shameful uh, in my view, where, where we stand as a, as a nation in terms of our values, uh, and how they are so misaligned with what parents really need, uh, Mm -hmm. to be able to be the parents we want them to be, to -hmm. cultivate the next generation. Um, we're gonna have to take a short break here. And, um, when we come back, we'll be talking about how fathers change, uh, as a result of becoming, fathers. So don't go away. Um, I'll be continuing my conversation with Professor Darby Saxby. In just a minute, I'm Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Stay with us. We will be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Hey, welcome back to Work and Life. Really glad you're here. I am your host, Stu Friedman, and I am speaking today with Darby Saxby, who's a professor of psychology at the University of Southern California's David and Dana Dornsife College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences. Darby, um, let's get back to talking about your fascinating research. Uh, We've talked a bit. We've just started to scratch the surface of what you've discovered about changes in women as they become mothers. Um, I've got a lot more questions about that, but we, we really need to address what you're discovering about fathers and understudied group of parents, generally speaking, uh, what are some of the big ideas coming out of your research on the transition to parenthood for fathers? Yeah. So we are scanning men, uh, in our lab during their partner's pregnancy. So we bring couples in, we, you know, so we're recruiting sort of fathers even before they are officially fathers when they're expected dads. And then we're scanning them again when their babies are six months old. And when I collaborated with the group in Spain that had done the work on moms, we actually found that in our fathers, we were seeing volume loss in similar parts of the brain. Um, So less, less profound than, than those we see in moms, but some similar patterns of gray matter volume loss. Uh, And again, in a sort of central part of the brain that is linked with social cognition, sort of suggesting that fathers are restructuring their brain in a way that is also facilitating parental care. So, you know, I have to tell you, this is all work in progress. We, uh, our postpartum data collection was really torpedoed by the pandemic. Mm. So, um, which is one reason we switched gears and started doing some survey work on the pandemic instead. But um, we're slowly now, sort of now that it's safer to be back in the lab, we're scanning our last few dads um, who we had lost to follow up last spring. And, and we're, you know, sort of analyzing the data as we speak. What we've started to look at, um, you know, as the postpartum scans are trickling in is just looking at prenatally, are there things about the expectant father's brain that will tell us how he's going to adapt to parenthood? And so we've been looking at things like, you know, how fathers respond to tasks of mentalizing. Like we showed that. 
So mentalizing is like imagining what somebody else might be feeling, putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Hmm. And as you can imagine, when you're, you know, when you've got a new baby, you have to be really good at mentalizing because again, you have this nonverbal creature that gets really upset and you have to figure out how to soothe it. So we, we have a task that we do with the dads in the scanner where we show them a series of pictures of somebody doing a task and we ask them either how are they doing that task? So it could be like zipping up a dress. So they're using their hands or why are they doing that task? And it could be like getting dressed for a party. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at that. Why, you know, why might somebody be doing something? And we're finding that the way dads respond, the way their brains light up when they do the why actually is predicting their effective parenting when their babies are six months old. So again, really showing that that social cognitive brain is equipping fathers for uh, better parenting outcomes down the road. And, you know, it's not mind-blowingly surprising that, you know, the way our, our brains engage in social cognition could set us up to be more effective parents. But I think it's something that's really not been looked at as much in men, you know, like what are the skills that men can bring to the table when they become new parents? And again, thinking about parenting so often we think of it as this biological imperative, like you're just born with this instinct. I like to think of it as a skill that we can train that fathers can cultivate hmm. much as you would cultivate any other kind of workplace. skill. Like, like how? So like, where would you start? So, you know, like, like I actually think the why, how task is a great one to practice on, right? The like, what? The what? The why, it, we, so it's called the why, how task. The task why, how? Gets, um, the pictures and they say, why is the person doing the action or how is the person doing the action? Um, you know, we're constantly mentalizing, right? Like we're mentalizing machines. We love stories. We love to imagine what's going on in other people's minds. I actually think the best way to become an empathetic person is to read fiction because you have to immerse yourself in somebody else's perspective. You know, I was going to ask you about how your training uh, and early interest in literature has influenced your thinking and your research. So I'm really glad you're on this now. Um, I, I'm actually taking two courses in the English department at the University of Pennsylvania right now. Oh, cool. uh, and I took, after taking one course last semester, um, because I was an English minor as an undergraduate a million years ago. And um, <clears throat> you know, I was just talking last night with my wife about this very observation. So Please say more. So you're saying that expectant fathers should be reading more uh, novels? That's that's it. That's the intervention. Read a bunch <laughs> of novels. <laughs> okay. Then become a new dad and, and you're going to be great at it. No, but I think anytime you're putting yourself into someone else's mind and yeah. trying to understand their experience, right? And you could argue like that's a skill that we don't always exercise in our society and our political discourse this idea of like perspective taking mm -hmm. um, and, and really trying to understand other people's minds. Um, well, and, and literature is certainly one powerful way to do that. Um, are there other interventions that flow naturally and obviously from what it is that you're discovering about changes in parents' brains, particularly fathers yeah. as they um, become parents? So another paper that one of my grad students just submitted, it's under review right now, looked at other predictors of father's bonding postpartum with their babies. One of the big findings from other labs, and we replicated this in this paper, 
is that men who have better quality relationships with their partners also tend to have more rewarding relationships with their babies. And it sort of seems like, okay, you're good at relationships in one domain, you're going to be good at relationships in another domain, but we don't find this for the moms, right? The moms sort of have their own relationship with the baby. It really appears that for the fathers, they are sort of taking their cues from their pregnant partner. And, you know, when fathers have better prenatal relationship quality with their expectant partner, they are then sort of set up to have an easier time bonding with their baby. But the and relationship so it, quality for uh, for mothers it doesn't affect their um, their their parenting of their child. No. So you know, it it really appears is this another that, case of men are idiots? No. I think it, no? no, I I think it's it's the the fact that it's actually really hard to bond with an unborn baby when you're not the one carrying the baby, and so. Mm you know, like father's sort of entry into parenthood is kind of shaped in some ways by their relationship with this other person, you know, and of course I'm talking about biological parents and there are lots of different ways that people become parents. So I don't mean to, um, you know, be exclusive about that, but just in that particular case. And, and so, you know, one intervention that I think, you know, could facilitate dads becoming fathers is, relationship quality right and that sort of goes back to this same idea of like mentalizing understanding other people's perspectives if you can build communication skills and build relationship skills in expectant parents that might actually be really beneficial to the kid you know who isn't even born yet when you're starting to do this intervention um and and so that's sort of another thing that you know we're finding in my lab what about grandparents Are they a part of your research scheme uh, in terms of uh, how they affect both uh, relationship quality and its impact on uh, both fathers and mothers and children? So we are not asking for a friend. (laughs) We're not explicitly testing grandparents, but I think there are a lot of different ways that grandparents are important. One thing we ask our couples is about their early childhood family experiences We ask them about their attachment styles. We ask them about being in difficult or harsh or high conflict families. So, you know, there is this like intergenerational transmission of family relationship quality. We learn how to be good partners from our own parents, right? So there's sort of the the imprint, right, or not. There's the imprint that our families of origin kind of leave on us. And then, of course, there's also sort of the ongoing relationship with grandparents and you know, we know that parenting requires a lot of support and, um, you know, it, having extended family involved is something that will relieve stress. Like our society, like in the U.S., we have much pressure on the sort of nuclear immediate family unit, right? Like the couple is sort of expected to do everything. Um, they're balancing careers. They're balancing. It's kids, insane. They end up with this like rickety scaffold of all these outside supports that are you know, paid childcare, paid summer camp, um, takeout meals, right? Whereas I think you see in other societies, much more common that you live with extended family or you live close to extended family and community. And so there's just more support available to parents. So I think that's another way in which grandparents can really matter. And, you know, one of the things we've been noticing with our pandemic work is that people are saying like, I'm far away from my family. I have no one who can fly out and hold the baby. Hmm. Um, All right. Uh, We need to take just a a quick break here. And then I want to hear what you're finding your early uh, 
results are with respect to what what the pandemic has done to parents. Uh, this is Work and Life on Business Radio at Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm speaking with Darby Saxby, an assistant professor of psychology. Is that right? Associate. Yeah. I'm Associate. Prof- right. I'm sorry. Typo <laughs> here on what I'm reading from. Please forgive me. Oh, it's probably my old bio. It's my at, fault. Well, okay. Uh, at, at, at the University of Southern California. So what are you finding so far a year in now we are uh, about about what the pandemic has done to parents? Yeah. And I, I don't have to look very far to find this because I have two kids that whose school has been closed since last March. So we're going on more than a year of right them doing school remotely at home. And, you know, this year has just been brutal for parents. Um, you know, it's it's sort of like I mentioned, like the rickety scaffolds that support working parents and, and all the sort of arrangements that we cobble together to kind of make it work. So much of the of, of that scaffolding has been pulled away this year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, parents have just been floundering. So um, my lab sort of continuing with our transition to parenthood focus has been following expected in new parents across the pandemic. So in April, I mentioned we had to stop scanning, our lab shut down, you know, the campus shut down. Um, and we were sort of, you know, I had all these grad students with great ideas. What are we going to do now? So we decided that let's try to understand what it's like to be pregnant um, in this kind of like age of lockdowns and social distancing. Mm-hmm. And we were seeing in the news, you know, moms having to give birth alone, um, not being allowed to have anybody come to the nursery to visit. That happened to my to my first biologically created grandchild last March. Oh, my yeah. son was in New York City, and uh, it was the last day that fathers were prohibited from being. It was end of March. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, please continue. I can I understand the phenomenon, and Me I want to know what you've been finding about. What, what what the impact has been on parents yeah. and what they can do to mitigate the the negative effects of social isolation and other restrictions. Yes. Yeah. And, and that giving birth alone is such a perfect example of how tough it's been because, you know, we are such social creatures. Humans are the only species that is designed to give birth with assistance, right? Like every other animal can, can deliver a baby on its own. We, have you know this whole culture built up around like you need help to pull the baby out Um, it's actually very hard to have a baby by yourself so this idea of not having your support people around you when you're delivering a baby is you know one that can really to whatever extent birth can set the stage for how you feel about parenting or how you're adjusting Mm -hmm. in the first few weeks and months Um, you know I think it's one that can really unsettle that um, so we started asking women, um, we, we got the survey out into the field, um, in early April and, and, you know, sort of blasted it around social media and, and got 760 responses from pregnant women and their expectant dad partners, um, and, and just said, you know, how are you doing? What's going on? And, what we found, and, and we had this comparison sample, because as I mentioned, my lab has been studying expectant and new parents over the last seven years. So we had this existing data from pre-pandemic, mm-hmm. looking at things like anxiety, mood, stress, social support, health and well-being. Things that people could self-report. 
Exactly. So we you, had all you don't, these- you, don't, you don't need a lab for that. So you can you make some comparisons. Yes, okay. we, we would give people the measures in the lab, but you don't need a lab to measure that. So we essentially converted those questionnaires, that, that whole sort of battery that we were giving um, couples into something that they could do online remotely. And we mm-hmm. just kind of sent the link all over the place. So what'd you find? And we found that pregnant moms in spring 2020 were really distressed. And we were actually shocked when we looked at the data. So um, the Beck depression inventory, which is a measure of clinical depression, half of the moms in our sample, pregnant moms during the first wave of social distancing were at the clinical cutoff, which means that they had clinically significant depression. Hmm. And in comparison, you know, our hatch sample, our existing pre-pandemic data similar to the widely known prevalence of, of about 20% are at clinical thresholds. So mm. we were seeing two or three times as much sort of clinical level depression in this pandemic sample. But it's, it's sort of a clinical sample though, right? Because people are responding to your survey and there's probably a bias in the responses, right? People, the kind of people who are going to respond to that survey are people who are feeling some pain, I'm guessing. No. Well, you can make that you can make that argument. I mean, and and I think you're right, right? It's a, it's a self-selected sample. And although we didn't say, you know, tell us that you're upset, we said just sort of like we want to know about your experience. Um so it was it wasn't necessarily designed for that. One thing though that was surprising to us is that because it was a convenient sample, we it, it was much more sort of socioeconomically privileged than our lab-based sample. Oh. So much more white, much Hmm. more um, highly educated, um, more affluent. So you actually would expect to see lower distress in that population. Um, Our lab studies, because we really emphasize diversity when we recruit, are, Uh um, you know, a a larger cross-section. So the fact that we were seeing heightened depression, anxiety, stress, really was especially surprising in the privileged population. This is a sample that has lower, right? We know that there are these socioeconomic disparities around, you know, sort of prenatal distress. We would have expected lower prevalence in the sample that we actually ended up getting. Unless they're somehow more likely to report it. But anyway, putting that aside. Yeah. In most of the research out there. So, so, you know, really heightened depression, similar story with anxiety, similar story with self-reported stress. And then when we asked about social support, yeah. significantly lower, right? And we know that social support is protective. It's a buffer against postpartum depression. So mm-hmm. it's important to measure social support in pregnancy because it's been linked with pregnancy outcomes like birth weight, gestational age. And we saw that, you know, social connection and social support were really driving this distress that women were feeling much less supported than, you know, than in our existing samples of mm. sort of pregnant couples surveyed around the same time point. So this is the main conclusion that the social isolation is driving a reduction in support, which is leading to greater uh, depression among pregnant moms in the pandemic? Exactly. And that's why we're now following this sample. So we we just wrapped up our three months. So we, we you know, we have the baby's birth dates, their expected birth dates from the prenatal survey. We've just wrapped up three-month data collection. We have six months going on, and now we're about to start our 12-month to look at how the babies are faring and how the mom's mood disorder risk 
you know, maybe shaped by their prenatal experiences. All right. So when, when will you have that? So we can get you back on here to tell us about that. Cause that's, I'm, I'm really eager as I'm sure many listeners are to, to know what you're finding about the impact of this, yeah. you know, radical uptick in depression um, and probably other uh, psychosocial indicators of uh, well-being as a result of the pandemic on, on parents. Is there anything, we just have a few minutes left here that that you can say uh, with some degree of confidence about what, what mothers and fathers should be doing now, uh, both in their own relationships, in their relationships with their kids and with their employers? Yeah. So going back to that theme of social connection and, and relationships matter, right. And that, you know, we talked about mentalizing and the parenting brain, Um, You know, we're talking about social disconnection with the early stages of the pandemic. Um, You know, I think really cultivating relationships and and not just sort of, you know, one thing we found in our pregnancy sample is women reporting less social contact with family, friends, co-workers, community members, but actually more contact with their partner. So again, putting a lot more pressure on that immediate cohabiting partner relationship to sort of be all things to all people. Mm. Um, so, you know, sort of broadening those networks, including workplace networks and shoring up social connection. And I think a lot of people have found solutions during the pandemic. You know, you and I are talking remotely, right? We're in different parts of the country. Um, in some ways it's facilitated connection and in other yes. ways, um, you know, it's made many people very lonely very isolated. It's, you know, reduced opportunities for, um, you know, meeting people or deepening friendships. So I think what we do next is what's critical, right? Like when we reopen schools, my kids are going back hopefully in another few weeks. Are we going to focus on just catching up on academics? Are we going to focus on social emotional connection and, you know, nurturing school community when workplaces open back up in person, right? Is it just going to be back to the sort of same old, or are we going to find ways to sort of enrich and deepen the connections that people can make at work? I think one thing we learned is we can have meetings remotely. People can work from home. I think we're learning the wrong lesson if we just close all offices and people sort of work from home indefinitely. I've been thinking more about like, can workplaces find ways to make people feel connected without necessarily demanding that people show up in person for every single meeting? You know, like, can we, can we community build with, with limited in-person contact and then supplement that with, you know, sort of remote connections? Yeah. So the hybrid model uh, seems to be emerging. Of course, it's going to vary by industry, by particular organizational demands of the environment and client relationships, et cetera. But uh, the, there's an explosion of innovation now with respect to the relationship between, uh, our home lives and our, our work lives, which which could be a silver lining in all this, as, as many yeah. people are, are describing. So, what what would be the essential feature of you know of of a, of a new world order with respect to uh, one's work and one's role as a parent? In greater, less than a minute, Darby. Greater integration, um, greater respect on both fronts. I think one thing that's nice about sort of converting to Zoom meetings is that we've all seen each other's kids and pets at this point, right? Like no, the the sort of myth of like the unencumbered worker has kind of been shattered. 
And I think we want to move forward recognizing like we all have people we love, responsibilities outside of the workplace, and that those responsibilities and relationships really matter, right? We know that relationships matter more for how long you're going to live than your income, mm-hmm. um, you know, to a certain point, right? You, you don't want to mm-hmm. be horrendously poor, but at a certain point, your relationship quality matters more. So aren't you glad you quit that startup 20 years ago? So there you go, right? Like I get to do what I love. I'm, I'm not, I don't have a private driver and, and a yacht, but I'm actually okay with that. Yeah, you have it's graduate students you. and colleagues and, and uh, yeah. a community that you've created with your uh, remarkable research program and all the other stuff you've been doing uh, to, to help us understand better what it means to become a parent, what that means for our kids. Uh, Darby Saxby, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. How can our listeners find out more about what you're up to and what you're most excited about in the months and years ahead? Yeah, so they can look at my lab website. It's the NEST Lab. I love acronyms. Neuroendocrinology of Social Ties Lab at USC or the center that I direct, the Center for the Changing Family at USC. We didn't even get to talk about it. It's an interdisciplinary research hub for faculty who study families in close relationships. So Center for the Changing Family at USC. We have a website where we post talks and events that we do. And um, we're going to release a research brief that summarizes the pandemic findings that we were just talking about a minute ago. What else can people find there? Uh, They can find bios of our members, uh, video of our talks, resources that we've pulled together, and uh, other research briefs. We have another brief looking at Latino moms' experience during the pandemic, and we'll be using the website to publish more of these working papers and research summaries. Awesome. Darby Saxby, thank you again for joining me today. Really appreciate your time and the work that you're doing. Such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Well, all right. And thank you for listening in, for joining us. Don't forget to tune in next week at 5 p.m. Eastern. If you have a question about something you heard on the show today, you can just email me, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu, or you can write to our station at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And you can be sure to follow us on Twitter. The show is at SXM Business. I am at Stu Friedman. Edited versions of this show are available as free podcasts a week or so after they air at totalleadership.org. There's all kinds of other cool stuff there, free resources, videos, book chapters, articles, and more about our company, Total Leadership, and what we do to help people create harmony and better performance in all parts of life. Thanks to Patty Hall, our producer, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.